and welcome to the Convex Conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Fosbury. On this week's podcast, I'm at the Hoxton in Hoban to meet an award-winning writer, producer and director. Freddie Nwaka, or Kruger as he's known, first caught my eye at a recent premiere of his new film, On the Other Foot. He was being papped on the red carpet with guest Patrick Hutchinson, known to millions as a hero at a Black Lives Matter rally in London when he saved the life of a white extremist. Freddie wrote On the Other Foot following those marches, triggered by the murder of George Floyd in America. It tells the comedic but thought-provoking fictional story of London cabbie Billy Pritcher, an out-and-out racist who's forced to re-examine his views when he wakes up black. So some of you may know me, my name's um, Billy, Billy Pritcher. So I want to start by saying that I'm British and I'm proud. I've got loads of black mates. Love you. Have you? Taxi! No chance, love. You don't like anyone that's black. You don't like anyone of colour, actually. Do you speak any English? Freddie has a fascinating background on the UK hip-hop scene, in rap, in film, and as an inspirational mentor, helping youngsters avoid a life of crime. But first, let's find out more about On the Other Foot. Freddie, it's lovely to meet you. And we have Patrick Hutchinson to thank for our introduction. Thank you for having me, man. <laughs> How are you? I'm very well indeed, <laughs> thank you. It's uh, it's really good to see you. And I really want to hear more about the new project, On the Other Foot. It kind of came about after George Floyd was, was say, killed in the US and everyone was marching around and the Black Lives Matter thing was going on globally, actually, to be fair. And I was like... I don't know if I want to be walking up and down with banners and screaming, man. Like, I'll be real. I'm, I'm for the cause, but I don't know if I want to be walking up and down and COVID and all kinds of stuff. I was like, let me just not do that. What could I do that could last a lifetime? Do you know what I mean? Something that when I'm not here no more, my children, my children's children could be part of a legacy. So I was like, you know what? Let me write a film. If I make a film, it will mean that even when I stop doing what I'm doing, people can still enjoy and learn from it. So I just came up with this idea. What would it be like if a racist guy woke up black? And we get to experience what black people go through daily. The pros, the cons, the good, the bad. And if I could change one person's mind, then my job is done. So that's where it kind of came from. And what did the lead character in the film learn, do you think? What kind of journey does he go on through the film? Billy Pitcher is a what I would call a staunch like racist. I mean, he hates everything of colour. And unfortunately for him, his daughter dates a black person as well. <laughs> so he's like, he, he hates it. So when he does turn black, not only does he turn black and get to find out about the culture, the food, and all those other things, interesting things, he also gets to hang out with the daughter's boyfriend because he becomes a young black person. So now he gets to hang out with the daughter's boyfriend and gets to realise that actually you should choose your partner based on love and not based on colour. So he learns two lessons. So it's not just uh, about racism, it's also a film about romance as well. And it deals with interracial relationships. And how easy did it flow, Freddie, when you put pen to paper or you started typing? How quickly did it all come together? For me, because I write all the time and I've always been a writer of some sort, whether it was music or film, it's easy. I feel I like to write things that literally I write unorthodox. I taught myself how to write, direct, produce. I never had no lessons, no courses, nothing. I just taught myself everything through trial and error. And I've made 10 movies now seven shorts and three feature films so when it came to writing this literally I just sat down and put all my life experiences plus experiences that I've heard of and people that I know and I put it all into a melting pot and then on the other foot was born. Can you give us some examples of some of the personal stories that you put into that melting pot? Yeah so for example I mean I mean there's a few occasions I remember one time being in Croydon and this was bizarre now I look back on it I was in Croydon at the bus shower minding my own business and a police van pulled up and the police officers jumped out they grabbed me 
I wasn't doing nothing, minding my own business. They threw me back in the back of the van. And I was, I remember I was quite young. Um, I was really scared. And I asked the police officer why I was being arrested. And he said to me, it's for all those old white people, your lot mug. And I was like, what? And I hadn't done nothing wrong. I was just standing at the bus stop. So that was like one of those things. And I mean, we hear all the time that black people get stopped and searched and all that kind of stuff. But this has been going on for many, many years. And I, that, that one day kind of brought it all back. So that's one example of, I mean, literally, he just said to me, this is literally because of what your people have been doing. And I'm like, I ain't done nothing. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm as a bus stop. There's also things like going for jobs in there where you go for a job and you just know that you are actually qualified to get the job, but because of your colour, you might not get the job. And I remember also growing up, my dad owned his own businesses out in Nigeria and was also successful here. And we got to a certain age and he was like, look, there's six of us. If you want, you can change your surname to Francis because you're not going to be able to get the job you go for. Like, And he worked in the job centre and he was seeing people coming for jobs and stuff like that. And, the, and if you had an African name, you weren't getting no jobs. You weren't getting no interviews. You wasn't getting nothing. So he literally sat us all down and was like, look, my surname's Nwaka, but if you want, you can change your surname to Francis to give yourself a better opportunity. So when you think back and you think to yourself, wow, that's, I mean, that's just deep in itself. And my brother, I think he, well, he changed his name to Charles Francis. Did um, he really? Yeah, and he's in the police force now. <laughs> so he's doing all right. And he's, I kept myself. Do you know, it makes, it makes me sad, Freddie, that, you know, it's 2022 and that we still need films like yours to get the message across. That's pretty tragic to me. Yeah, it's sad. I mean, but people be people and there's good and bad in every race. I'm very much like, my mate Patrick Hutchinson in the sense that it's not a black versus white, a white versus black. It's a everybody versus racism. You have just as many racist people in the black culture as you do in the white culture. And none of them are good. So I'm very much a person of, look, you know what? Right is right and wrong is wrong. No one's born. You're not born racist. My best friend was a young white kid that I met when I was like four months old. And when you're young, you don't see no colour. You just see people and emotions and feelings. And then you get taught to hate and not to like through things that happen and then what people teach you. How was your premiere evening? I mean, it looked glitzy. I wish I'd known you then. I wish I'd been on that red carpet. Oh, yeah, it it looked amazing, a gorgeous man. night. Yeah, it was amazing, man. Obviously the film has Peter Andre in it, has Lady Leisha in it, Fleur East came. It was hosted by Vanessa Feltz and Ben. It was, it was just amazing. And I'm an independent filmmaker. So where I do all this myself, it was just amazing to kind of up my levels from just being this guy that taught himself to make little short films to now feature films that can be seen globally. For me, that night was a, a real boost. And also Robert White, who's the guy that I grew up with, he came all the way from Deal. Did he really? Yeah, and he came, he came on the red carpet and ah, he came on, yeah, so it was really nice. Really special. You looked every bit a Hollywood movie star on that oh, Did you like my seat, yeah? I did, I thought you looked <laughs> awesome. And I'm Thank embarrassed you. to say that's sort of how we're ended up sitting here today. You popped up on my Instagram mm. feed, Patrick's Instagram feed, and I'm like, hey, who's, mm. this, who's this cool dude on the red carpet? And then I read the story and just really wanted to meet you. And I think it's brilliant that you're an independent filmmaker and you also funded this movie in an unusual way and got people involved, didn't you? Tell me a bit about the backstory of how you actually managed to do it. I done a small Indiegogo campaign and got a certain amount of money from people that just wanted to support the film. I also got loads of local businesses that because it's about support and about kind of growing together. And some of these brands out there will never have their products in feature films globally. So I was like, look, I'll help you if you help me. So basically I took their brands and put some of these real small brands on big stars like Peter Andre, Lady Leisha and so on. And they just paid a small fee. So that allowed me to be able to raise the money to make the film, but it also gave them the kudos and the promotion that they needed for their brands. 
And there's a few of my friends that were also like, Freddie, we believe in the project. So they put some money in as well. And then we just made it happen. And didn't you champion local business <clears throat> and community as well, like the, the barbers? And- yeah, yeah. We, we use local barbershops, we use local restaurants. Basically, I handpicked everyone that was for the cause. And that was the, the fight against racism. Not everyone wants to walk around wearing end racism t-shirts or wave banners. And, do you know what I mean? But it doesn't mean because they don't walk around, they don't feel the same energy and have the same mindset. So some people would rather just sit in their home but I still want to fight with you. So it allowed those people that didn't want to walk around or couldn't march to still have an input and still do their part. That's fantastic. It's really great stuff. I'm intrigued by your background, Freddie, because before we started chatting, you told me that you grew up the only black boy in Deal in Kent to white parents. What is your history? What happened when you were young? So I was fostered in a place called Deal and it was a product of this, it's now, well, I don't know if it was called that then, but it's now called Farming. And it was basically when predominantly African families would adopt or foster their children out to white families around Kent. The lead character in my film, his name is Pitcher, and this guy's name was also Bill Pitcher. So I kind of named it after him, even though he wasn't racist. So it's a bit of a, <laughs> yeah. Um, so Bill Pitcher and Mary Mills, they were my foster parents in Deal. And I was the only black person in the town from, I think from four months old, from what I know, until I was nine, ten. And it was weird. I mean, it's really weird because... I thought I was the only black person in the world. I used to put Brillo cream in my hair. Like I, I had this afro and I used to put Brillo cream in my hair and it would just be stiff. <laughs> it just be stiff to one side. The strange thing about it is that through all the pain that I went through, it was still beautiful. I mean, I got tied to trees at some point. They used to scratch my skin to see if the skin would come off, put their fingers in my hair. And I remember one time I was walking on the high street and these National Funk guys came up to me and they were doing the Nazi sign, but I thought they was waving. So I just waved them back. <laughs> I was like, hi, hello. <laughs> but this time they were doing the signals and like they were supposed to taking the piss, but I was just thought, I thought he was waving hello, innit? I didn't know that they were making those Nazi signals. But at the same time, my foster parents showed me so much love. It's like, it was really weird to be in a place surrounded by so much racism, but yet, I didn't know it was racism. I was still loved by my foster parents. And um, it was those days where you could go into people's house. And I remember waking up one Christmas when I was really young. And my best friend was a guy across the road from me called Robert White. And I used to go into his house, used to come into my house, we used to play games and his family was my family. And there was no racism. Like, I didn't know, do you know what I mean? I just didn't know where it was. Like, even though I was black and I looked different, I didn't even know I was black. It's such a weird thing to say, like, Obviously, I'd look black, but I didn't know I was black until I got older. Then I realised, oh, wow, there's other black people. There's more. There's, it's not just me then, okay? That sucks. I thought I was the only one. <laughs> I thought you were Yeah, I thought it was special. Did, <laughs> you know? it, did it trouble you, though, when you said you grew up and you thought you were the only black kid? Did that bother you? Did you look in the mirror and wonder why you looked different? Or did it trouble you in any way? I think when I was younger, it made no difference. You look at, I guess, body types and cultural differences and... I was the fastest person in my school. So I, I was like kind of championed and I was the best fighter in my year. I was championed. So I had all these little pluses and not, not saying because I was black, but I kind of stood out because I was black and I was the fastest and I was the best fighter. You know what I mean? So it kind of worked in my favor. When I came to London is when it really became a problem because black people didn't like me because I was into ultra rocks and Duran Duran and I was doing like, come on, Arlene and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> doing them dances. There's and, nothing wrong with no, that, I really. that. Abba, I like, come on, Arlene. So, Abba, listen, listen, get me in the pub, right? And put on Abba dancing Korean. I'm on tables and all sorts. We'll be there, we'll do it, we'll <laughs> yeah. do it. So I was into all that. And like, obviously my peers and my friends were into reggae and hip hop and R&B and soul. And I was into like Abba and Wham. Do you know what I mean? So it was a, it was really weird, like Adam Ant. 
Do you know what I mean? Standard delivering with that kind of stuff. <laughs> You're so much my era. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I we definitely it. need a night out yeah, with we, a karaoke we, we machine or something. We'll do, we'll do, we'll do, we'll do that. that. So black people looked at me weird because I was a weird black person. And in the 70s, 70s 80s, white people looked at me weird because I was black. So I never really had any identity. I didn't know where to go. And I found myself really weird. Like when I was at school, I'd be in the playground playing with insects and beetles instead. Rather than talking to people, I'd just be in the corner just playing with ants. And Because, you know what I mean? They did not like me. Oh, I must have been such so a I confusing time for you. insects and beetles and stuff, man. And then um, that was that. And then I went through school fighting a lot because obviously I was just a weird boy, man. Well, I don't think I was weird. I was just one of those misunderstood children. And I think that got me into a lot of fights and a lot of trouble and then got me involved in gangs and all kinds of stuff. We'll go back to school years and, and maybe getting into a bit of bother in a minute. But what was the idea behind that whole, it's a horrible word, that whole farming scheme? Do you know what? I do not have an idea why they call it farming. It's almost like, because it almost, you're almost trying to imply that black people are animals. <laughs> yeah, it's not I mean? very nice. It's not a very nice word, is yeah, it? But what was the idea of people from Africa being fostered by white families? Why was there the need for that? Well, I don't actually know, if I'm honest, what the context of it, why it came about. I do know that a lot of African families had a lot of children around those times. So like this, I've got five brothers and sisters and my dad went back to Nigeria to be a part of the Biafra war. Or it has something to do, like, I'm not hundred percent sure. And my mum couldn't cope. And so therefore what they would do, or what she done was gave us to, to white families that would look after us so that she could go to work and so on. And I think maybe I was only supposed to be there a little while, but I actually loved being there. Like it, it was amazing. Do you know what I mean? Like. I wouldn't change it for the world. You know what I mean? It was such a beautiful time in my life. It kind of came from that black families not being able to necessarily look after all their children or want to give them better education and things like that. So they fostered them out for a while. And then when they got themselves on their feet, it's a bit like when the Windrush came and all the Caribbeans came, it was that same kind of thing. And then when they got themselves on their feet, they sent for their kids to come back. So go back to when you were at school and you did get yourself in a bit of bother and, and you did, well, you say even on your website, I mean, you, you're a member of a, a South London gang. I guess it was just wanting to be seen. When you come from a place where you have real identity, like, you know what I mean? Like I said, black people didn't like me, white people didn't like me. I was just this guy who just existed. It actually started with music, reggae music. And I went to this um, reggae festival and I saw this guy emceeing toasting on the mic but reggae not rap reggae toasting and everyone was screaming ah and I was like wow he's got friends like do you know I mean? people like him so I'm like I, I gotta do that so I taught myself how to do reggae and chat on sound systems and the reggae culture for dancehall was very aggressive like a lot of the, the big reggae artists were people like Ninja Man who was a dancehall murderer you know what I mean? He come on and that people and kill people on mics and stuff. So it was very, and the sound system thing was really aggressive. So there was this demeanor that kind of went with being a reggae artist at the time. Like, cause there was a lot of clashes, sound clashes and things like that. So I was walking around as this character, Freddy Krueger character. And then I just found myself in a world that I didn't even want to even want to be a part of, to be fair. I liked the entertainment side, but I didn't necessarily like all the other stuff. I ended up doing some security at this party. It was the worst, but the best thing of my life. That's what got me involved in all the, I guess, the, the gang stuff. So I started off at this party. This guy's come to the party and he's the local bad boy. And he's like, I'm coming in. And I'm like, well, no, you're not. And I remember I had a machete, but I was never going to use it. I just had it because I was like, you know what? I, got to, I, I need to look tough. You know what I mean? Even though I'm not, I'm from Deal. Like, I'm <laughs> from Deal, I'm, I'm from, from the seaside. Yeah, I'm from the seaside. <laughs> I go fishing and eat like fish and chips. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not that guy. So I was on the door with this machete and a dog. 
and this guy's turned up who's probably the real deal and he's like I'm coming in and I'm like you're not coming in and these days the house parties were just packed like health and safety was like, out the window like people hanging out windows and all sorts and this guy's coming to the door and he says he's coming in I'm like you're not coming in and he's taking out a flick knife and flicked the knife out on me he said well, I'm coming in do you know who I am so I can see all these people looking at me watching me so I had this machete so I thought you know what I've got to do something regardless so I thought let me just swing this machete at his head but not him just make him scared so I swung the machete and the machete, I timed it just nicely. So it just missed his face and it hit the wood and all the wood shattered and everyone started screaming, ah, like, like everyone's running around and this guy just ran. So I chased him down the road with the machete. Then I came back to the party and I stood on the door and everyone's like, ah, oh, Freddy's mad, man. Freddy's nuts, man. Like, don't want to mess with Freddy type thing. And then the guy came back, but his head was all bleeding and stuff. So they thought that I chopped him in the head, but he fell over somewhere and banged his head down the road. I didn't do it, he fell over. But when he came back with his head all bleeding, obviously there was no mobile phones those days. So it's word of mouth. So quickly it spread that Freddie was a bit mad because he's chopped this guy in the head. And so then I now became this person that I actually wasn't. But then I was now then forced to become that real person because moving forward, what would happen now is like, don't mess with Freddie because Freddie will chop you in your head. And then I was forced to then become violent and get involved in stuff that I didn't really want to be. So what started off as me being this guy from Dill, as the basic normal person, I then had to really become this person. And then I ended up getting involved in lots of fights and I guess doing stuff that I'm not proud of. And yeah, then I became the real person, if that makes sense. I it does, but on the flip side, you've used all of those experiences from your background for good. And you help people now, don't you? You help gang members and ex-offenders find a life away from crime and using the creative medium. Tell us what you've done on that front with the organisations you've set up. Today, I've lost over 45 of my friends have been killed. It's been horrendous, some of the things I've seen. I've realised that looking at my own life, most people are actors. You realise that 99% of us act in some shape or form and at some point. And a lot of people won't admit it. They're not the same way in front of their parents as they are when they meet their friends or if they go for a job interview. So you're acting. Some of these children and some of these young people that I meet, they're all actors and they just want a way out. And the thing is, a lot of people was like, oh, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. But if you don't give someone an opportunity or give them something else to replace what they're doing, then they're not going to do it. So what I did, I set up one organisation called Creating Role Models. Well, it was crime creating role models and media enterprise. That's what it stood for. And basically what I was doing is going into schools, colleges and prisons and basically taking these young people and letting them use the same energy that they put in on the streets, running around doing crime, but into film. Um, I found that a lot of young people either want to do music or want to do film. So I give them an opportunity to work alongside well-known established actors, real film sets, learn transferable skills behind the set and in front of the camera, give them credits that they will never get that will allow them on their way and just let them ch channel their, I guess, their acting instead of putting it for wrong, putting it for good. And do you think as well that some of the people you meet have just never had any opportunity to channel it for good through perhaps where they've grown up or how they've grown up and that that's why it's gone the wrong way because they haven't had pathways that you've created for yourself or that we all try and go on the good pathways. Yeah, I think for a lot of people, I mean, you have a lot of people that missed opportunities. Some is ignorance, some is miseducation. I look at my life, all the things I went through, even from being abused. I was abused when I was in care. And I look at some of these young kids and they have everything going for them. So when I go into schools and crews and these youth offending places, I'm like, what are you doing? I'm hard on them. I'm like, I'm not playing no games with them. Like, And I tell them I don't have to be here. 
I'm only here because I care. And if I can change my life based on all the adversities that I've had and yours is just because you didn't get a job or because mummy didn't buy you a pair of trainers. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You're angry. Why, why are you so angry? Do you know what I mean? And it's like, yeah, but no, why are you so angry? What have you actually been through that's made you want to do this stuff? And when they actually sit down and actually think about it, there's nothing. There's nothing there. Like it's because it's something to do or it's like, I was just boredom or oh, my mates were doing this so I want to do it or money. Or, the reasons why a lot of people do this stuff is so rubbish. And I've been out in LA in Compton working with the Bloods and Crips and stuff. It's generational. So you'll meet a family and if you're born on the wrong street, you're automatically a Blood or a Crip. doesn't matter whether you want to be or not. If you're born on a certain road, you are now officially a Crip because you're into Crip territory, which therefore means that you now have to what they call bang, which is basically putting work and do crimes and so on and so on for the street because you're a crip or a blood. If an other gang member sees you, you are a target. So you're born a target, whether you like it or not, unless you leave. You'll find that the mum was a crip, the dad was a crip, the niece was a crip, everyone's a crip or a blood. It's all changed now. It's so, from when it first started, it was actually two different gangs against each other. But now you have bloods that don't get on with bloods and you have crips that don't get on with crips. And it's not really, it's all mixed up now. So for young people out there, they're just born into it. A lot of them are born into it. think they haven't really got much choice in life. Yeah, exactly. A lot of them are just born into it. I've done a lot of time out there in South Central, Crenshaw, Compton. I worked with a guy called Chico Brown, Google Chico. He was in jail with a guy called Freeway Rick. And they were the guys that were said to have funded the Cuban war. They were making like hundreds of millions a year. And they were working with Tookie, who'd been executed by Arnold Schwarzenegger when he was the governor for founding the Crips. So he took me around Compton and all the rest of it. And I got to meet so many different gang members. And, and you just realise that some of these kids, they just have no way out. And it's like they can be on the corner making hundreds of thousands of dollars a week or go to school and make no money and maybe get a job. When you're offered that, big, big gang members will come up to them and be like, look, just stand on the corner and keep watching me and I'll give you $500. Most children are going to say, all right, don't have to go to school. Trainers got protection from the, from the gangs. Why wouldn't they? Unless you're going to offer them more. Whereas in England, I find a lot of these young people have got choices. Their mums have got good jobs. Their dads have got good jobs. You're not really wanting for anything. So if you're joining a gang, you want to. It's fun. It's not because you need to. Do you know what I'm saying? So, so when you go somewhere like LA, how can in that kind of situation, how can you make a difference? Because that does sound seductive if you were a kid and you're wanting the latest trainers and somebody asks you to keep watch on a street corner for a few hundred bucks or whatever that would probably be very enticing how can your stories make a difference out there it's really strange like you'd find that a lot of americans haven't left america <laughs> Do you know what i mean they've not been nowhere it's funny i went to compton high school and the teacher was like this man you got black people in the uk i'm like what you're a teacher and you're asking <laughs> me like do you not know there's black people around the world you think they're only in compton Do you know what i mean and that really shocked me and made me realize like wow like how limited it is and i found that when i was talking to some of the young people out there you can't really change their perspective because you like i said if you're not giving somebody something to replace what they're already getting it becomes hard but what you can do is give them hope and give them some form of there's more to this do you know what i mean so traveling meeting somebody from another country inspires like i've sat down with them like man i didn't know there was black people in the uk man you're cool and i'm like yeah we're all right and then they asked me about mr bean 
Like, you know what I mean? They think that it's always raining. Well, it is always raining, but they think England's always raining. It's always cold. And they're like, do you know the Queen? I'm like, no, I don't know the Queen. It's really weird the way they look at the UK. I think it just opens their eyes to more than just standing on a street corner. And I guess we have these conversations about wanting more. And I kind of like, but do you not want to do more than this? Like, this doesn't last forever. And it's the same thing I tell these kids over here. You either end up dead, you end up in prison, or you end up on drugs. Like, there is no good ending. Even some of the biggest drug dealers that are making lots of money, they get out of the game. And then sometimes later, when they think everything's nice and cool, they get a knock on the door. Like, I know quite a few guys who were doing a lot of stuff and they changed their life around and... Do you know what I mean? Like, there was a guy in particular, obviously I won't say his name, and we was at a funeral together and he came to me and he was like, look, pretty man, I'm not doing this stuff no more. I'm going to open a shop. And I was like, what? You're going to open a shop? He said, yeah, I was going to open a shop and just stop doing what I was doing. So I was like, you can't open a shop, bro. You can invest in a shop, but you can't open a shop and work in it because you've done too much stuff. And he was like, I'll be all right. Three weeks later, you opened the shop. So I was like, well, good on you, man. You've opened the shop. You changed your life around. But then about a couple of weeks after that, a motorbike came by and sprayed him up with a MAC-10 and killed him. Shot him in the shop. Sometimes you do too much that you, you can't carry on and not enough that you can't stop. It's a real weird ground. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, I sort of get that. Yeah. I think as well, what makes the massive difference with you is you've been there your life story is so fascinating your experiences are so different and vast that you can sit there and be cool to these youngsters and they can see what you've done and how you've turned life around i think that's the key thing for a lot of people always ask how do you change the minds of these young people and to be honest with you they're not interested in someone who went to uni and studied sociology or psychology because you've never been on the corner you've never had someone pointing a gun at you you never have to run or you can't go home at night because someone's looking looking for you so when I talk to these kids and they're like but say you don't know what it's like I'm like actually I've done more than you'll ever do and I've seen more than you ever would have seen at your young life so actually I'm credible to tell you why you can't and why you shouldn't do certain things and then what helps is because now I'm working alongside people like 50 Cent and I've done stuff with so many people it's like they go and google me and they're like, oh, so I saw you, sir, I saw you in this, or I didn't know you'd done that, sir, or I didn't know you rapped and all this kind of stuff. And they're like, yeah, I'm like, so they can Google me. So they've, they've seen the transition from me being just like them to where I am now. So it gives them that hope and that confidence that, well, if he can do it, I definitely can do it. And that's the kind of tool that I use to try and help these kids. Like, you think racism, for example, is not getting a job. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? No, you didn't get the job because look how you're dressed. Would you hire you? Look at you. Would you hire someone like you over him? This guy's got degrees and he's dressed properly and he's speaking eloquent you've got your trousers hanging down and do you know what i mean you're late would you hire you and they're like yeah true sir true. so it's just about making people accountability man look at yourself stop making excuses man stop blaming other people for what you can do better and is it really rewarding when maybe you're in a prison or you're in school and that light bulb moment happens and you've realised that you've made that connection and you're going to make a difference? Yeah, I love it, man. I mean, if I can change what, like, mine's all about legacy. I've got children of my own. And for me, I love it when, even not, maybe not on the day, do you know what I mean? They're talking to them and some of them want to be hard and want to act like they're not paying no attention. But then later on down the line, they, you'll see them on the street or do I get a message and they'll say like, you really inspired me, man. Like before you and just little comments you'll, I'll get on Instagram or my Facebook or text messaging and you realise that you've actually got through to somebody and changed somebody's life. That one little conversation, that one little bit of time you took out may have saved a life. 
and that could have saved a life. I, I actually believe if I had people, I guess like myself and even Patrick and other guys like that, maybe some of the things that I've done in my past and things I was involved in, I wouldn't have got involved in if there was someone who came to me and said to me, Freddie, you, you can do better, you can do more. You are, you know what I mean? You are special, we do see you. Sometimes people just need a hug and to be told, you are okay, you know, you're going to be all right. I never had none of that stuff, man. And I just feel like some of these kids, I just grabbed them and bear hugged them. And they're like, get, get off me, sir. No, I'm not getting off you until you told me you're going to do better. It's like, yeah. So mine is just about love goes a long way. It certainly does. Tell me about your rapping. I keep hoping you might slip into a little bit. Oh, a little buzz. Oh, funny enough, I'm the only British artist that was never signed to Wu-Tang. I got signed to Wu-Tang, massive rap outfit. Um, if you're familiar with hip hop, they're from Staten Island. And I was rapping in the UK for a while. And a guy called Mark Cordner, he was head of Wu-Tang International, heard me on the radio. And he was like, man, I like what you were doing. And I was like, all right, cool. He's like, I want you to join Wu-Tang. And I'm like, what, I mean, the Wu-Tang as in the Wu. And he's like, yeah, yeah. So got signed to Wu-Tang International, was working on that album. It was cool. I used to spit like, um, you think I started, uh, came up on Soul Train, Soul Plane. I was a skinny guy with no frame and no name. Back in those days, most braids came up on Mob Deep, Nas and Ghostface. This beard gives me a ghost face. I had a couple of close shaves. To be fair, I was certified in most raves. Most days, I got away with murder. OJ. You know what I mean? Like, I did a lot of things like those kind of little bars. Um, yeah. So I used to freestyle and come up with lyrics off the top of my head and write songs. That, but yeah. Oh, you've had quite a, quite a history <laughs> and you've won awards, haven't you? Hip hop awards and stuff. Yeah, I won awards for my music. I won awards for acting, for mentoring and all kinds of stuff. So I'm working on my book now. Tell Hopefully. me about your book. Yeah, so my book's called Boy because um, in Kent I was called The Black Boy. It's really funny because Little Britain, you have the only gay in the village. I was the only black boy in the village. You know what I mean? It was literally like that. So I used that same kind of thing. And they used to call me the black boy. If things would go wrong, it was the black boy who did it. It wasn't even me, but because everyone knew I was the black boy, I was easy to find. So it was the black boy. So my book's called Boy, and it just takes you from being fostered from four months old through the child abuse I went through, the racism I went through, but also through all the love. And then when I came back to London, the change and just kind of finding myself and to becoming who I am today, really. It sounds, I shouldn't be telling this because you're the, you're the director and the writer and the film producer, but it sounds like there's a film in that. Yeah, a few people have said that. I think maybe one day, man, when I get famous and people actually want to know my story, I will definitely turn it into a film. It's a passion film. It's not, you know those films you watch and it's like, you will only watch it. It's a specific kind of watch. It sounds like it's a bit of a Mike Lee film. Okay, yeah. So where, you know, it's all about the characters and emotion and... And, and people. It's very heartfelt. It would be one of those very warming, heartfelt journeys. Yeah, my childhood was a real journey. And it was really, the more I think about it, and even writing in the book, it's unlocking these things that I've forgotten. And I'm like, wow. I went back to deal after 40 years. I hadn't been there for 40 years. And I went back there to kind of just to refine myself. I went back to the house that I used to live in. <laughs> and I knocked on the door. I don't know, what, I don't know what, what I was thinking, but I knocked on the door and this woman came out and she's looking at me like, do you know what I mean? This big black guy is standing at the door. And I'm like, this is going to sound really, really strange. I used to live here. And she's like, what? And I could see the look on her face like, have I come to rob her? Or come to get her? <laughs> this is funny. I said, no, 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 no. Seriously. I said, your kitchen's there. Your bathroom's there. You got up the stairs there. She said, how do you know this? I said, because I used to live here. And she's like, I said, oh, and across the road is the White family. And she's like, you know, Robert White and Mrs. White? I said, yeah, I grew up with them. And so that warmed her because I couldn't know the names. And then we just started talking. And she's like, wow, that. I said, yeah, I used to live in your house like 40 years ago. And then we just started talking and it was really nice to um, to reconnect. I didn't want to say, can I come in and have a look around? But I, that's pushing it. I just thought, let me just stand at the door. You know what I mean? And it just seemed, everything just seems so small now. 
I remember the house being really big and the roads being really wide and we used to come out and play in the streets. Do you know, like, actually, like, and it's all really small now. Yeah, but you've grown now, Freddie. You're not that, you're not I know, that three was, foot six little boy that yeah, you were all those years happened. ago. I even went to the tree they tied me to. I found the tree they tied me to. Why did they tie you to a tree? I just, I don't know, man. I actually don't know, to be fair. And they used to come up to me and scratch me, try and see if my skin would come up. But I don't judge them. Like, I thought I was the only one. So they're probably thinking, wow, you know what I mean? They're looking at me like, what, what is he? Because <laughs> I didn't even know what I was, so let alone they weren't going to know. Did you, you know? find it quite cathartic writing the book? Well, I'm still writing, but yeah. And also a real self journey and kind of finding myself and having to own up to some home truths and just realising why I am the way that I am. And some of the things I've done in my life, like I said, that I'm not proud of what's got me to where it got me. I'm not making excuses or trying to blame or pointing the finger, but sometimes we're products of our environment. So whereas for me, for example, I might not always have as much remorse as I should have or be as compassionate as I could have been. I look at things like the relationship that I had with my mum. For example, being fostered for so long, I hated my real mum for so many, many years. Like I actually hated her. When I came to London, there was so much hate between me and her. And luckily, 10 years, she died two years ago. But 10 years before she died, I managed to turn it around. And she told me that she loved me like after so long. And I think maybe if I'd had that when I was younger, I might not have been the person that I was. These little things started to come back to me and writing has just taught me so much and I guess freed a lot of thoughts and processes in my mind. I think we could all do with maybe doing that at some point, even if it's not something that's published. Mm. But it's quite good, isn't it? To yeah, go back I think over. it's, I mean, just writing allows you just to let it go. Sometimes when it's on paper, when it's in your mind, it's there, it disappears. But when you read it and you read it again and you see it again, it does something different. It does. It gives you that time for reflection as yeah. well. And maybe it's analysed how you really did feel about certain things that maybe you brushed under the carpet or, yeah. or whatever. I'd love to end on a bit of your acting and, and where your love of that came from. And also your your film breaks. So I think your big break was Dead Man Running, wasn't it? Which starred the US rapper Curtis Jackson and also two of my favourites, Brenda Blethyn yeah. and Danny Dyer. I was a bodyguard for many years. I looked after so many people, including Notorious B.I.G., Biggie Small when he came to the UK. I looked after Donald Jones, TLC, Jay-Z, quite a few different people when they come to the UK, taking them around and stuff. And what had happened was I, I was actually looking after Curtis Jackson 50 Cent at a party with my brother. Fast forward a couple of years later, my friend was making the movie Dead Man Running and he was like, Freddie, there's a part in the film. Would you be interested in going for an audition? And I was like, really an actor. Like, I'm more... You know what I mean? I was this time I've been doing all the street stuff. I'm like, I'm more bodyguard security, not really. You got know, just go for it, innit? You'll get it, go for it. And I thought, you know what? It's worth a try. And to be fair, it was at a point in my life which was very, I guess, transitional because I was, as a rapper, every year I'd say to my son, who's your favourite rapper? You're like, you, dad. Like every single year, who's your favourite rapper, man? Dad, you are, you are. And then one day I said to him, who's your favourite rapper? He said, Dizzy Rascal. I said, what? <laughs> That for me, I was like, what do you mean Dizzy? I, I got angry and I realised, wow, you know what? I looked in the mirror, I'm like, Freddie, you got to you're getting too old to be rapping now. Like when your son starts telling you that you're not his favourite no more, you got to change. I mean, props to Dizzy because I think Dizzy's amazing. But I was like, all right, what am I going to do now? And that was one of the hardest things, looking in the mirror and telling myself that what I love doing as a rapper, I can't do it no more. Like I'm not relevant no more. I'm too old. Do you know what I mean? Which I don't know what, but I mean, yeah, that was that. So anyway, this happened now and I thought, you know what? If I get this job, 
maybe I can get a career as an actor. You never know. It's still creative. It's still doing stuff. So I went for the role, sat in the room, and I saw all these other actors around me. And I was like, I'm not going to get this, man. Like, these guys are all actors. And I remember seeing a few familiar faces in there that I was doing really well. I'm like, I ain't going to get this role. Like, I'm just not going to get it. I thought, what am I going to do? So they called me into the room. Jeremy Zimmerman, he's a well-known casting director, was there, a few other people. And then I remember this guy came up to me and they were like, why should we give you the job? Like, why should we give you the role? And then I took the guy and I put him in a headlock. And I was like, you're going to hire those guys out there to do what I do for a living. And then that was it. And then I got the job. <laughs> like, and I want to feel, but it's true though. You're gonna, they're all actors and they're going to act to do what I actually do anyway. And the role was to play a character who was 50 Cent's character's bodyguard. So I was a bodyguard anyway. So why are you going to pay these guys to act to do what I actually was doing? And that was where it kind of came back. So I got that job and I got the buzz for working as an actor. And then what had happened after that, I got a few more roles, but then I found every audition I was going for, I just wasn't getting the roles, I couldn't get the parts. And I just got frustrated with it. So I thought, you know what, if I can't get in the lane, I created my own lane. So I started to write and I taught myself how to write films. And then 10 years later, I've now made 10 movies and now I make my own films and I can put myself in when I want. If I don't want to put myself in it, so be it. Hey, listen, if you ever want a kid from Grimsby in your film, <laughs> I'm here. I grew up at the seaside too. Oh, okay, there's a film about, there's a film about Grimsby, there? isn't there? Yes, there is. With, um, Sasha that... Baron Cohen. Yeah, yeah, there yeah, you go. he's put us on the map. Yeah, he, he sure has. Will you leave us with a little bit of rap? If I'm honest, you know what? Now that I'm not really in a rap, I don't listen to too much rap now, you know? I listen more to R&B now. I'm, I've kind of chilled out a bit now. And I listen to reggae a lot more. So you've not gone back to ABBA and... ABBA will always be there. I'll always be, uh, listen, if, if when, when we go out to party, I'm going to be, I might embarrass you. Do you know what I mean? Because I'm uh, Dancing Queen, one of my favourite songs, Stand and Deliver, Adam Man. Yeah, uh, and Come On Eileen. Yeah, I mean, come that's on, come one on, of that's mine. I, I think we'll be all right when we go out for We'll our, be good, we'll be good. Yeah, we'll be good. We'll yeah. be good. We'll have, to, we'll have to make that a date. We'll have to go out, find somewhere that, so I won't mess up my rep, because right? no one knows. Yeah, we'll just do it on the quiet. Yeah, just me and you, no one else. I just want to say a massive thank you to you, Freddie. I know how busy you are at the minute and I know this new year has got lots of exciting projects coming up, but thank you for finding the time to hang and tell us a bit of your story today. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you, you are most welcome. You've been listening to award-winning writer, producer, director, filmmaker and rapper Freddie Nwaka talking about his life, his mentoring of gang members and ex-offenders and his new movie, On the Other Foot, which has just premiered in London. Download our series at convex.podbean.com or search The Convex Conversation on Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'll be back next week with another great guest. Can't promise you any rapping, but join me then.